Well, good morning. Everybody awake? It got really quiet all of a sudden. Well, it is uh, early as usual, but it's worse. One of the guys said it's not spring break that's the problem. It's spring break coupled with daylight savings time. Uh, it's like the, the worst combination anybody could come up with. It is early. We're going to jump into it this morning, chapter 44 and 45. Uh, we are two weeks away from the end of this series on Genesis. We've got two weeks left. And uh, just so you know where we're headed, and you don't need to write any of this down, we're going to send out an email, but when we finish in two weeks, we're going to take a short break. We're going to come back uh, April 27th, which is a Thursday night, and we're going to have what we do every year at that time, uh, a a one-off event called Focal Point, and we always take a hot-button topic and we bring in a guest speaker to address it from a biblical perspective. It's only going to be on that Thursday night. We have it at the Fort Worth campus, and we just invite everybody to come in because we bring in a guest speaker, and it's really hard to get somebody to travel to three different campuses. So we're going to have it on Thursday night, the 27th, where we've invited in a guy named Brant Hansen. He's an author, speaker, uh, podcaster. He's an incredible, incredible writer and uh, thinker, and he's going to come in, and the topic is called, What is a Man?, And we're dealing with that because of all the gender confusion stuff that's hitting our society. Uh, And he's going to deal with that, but our real goal is to talk about what is a godly man? What does the Bible say we should be like as men? What what are we called to do? So that's kind of where we're going to go. And then we're going to lead into a summer series, which starts the second week of May. And it's it's called The Godly Man's Picture. And we're going to take six different characters from Scripture, both Old and New Testament, and try to define what is a godly man supposed to look like. And so that's going to be kind of our theme for April through uh, June, looking at what does it mean to be a godly man? And it's not just doing godly-looking stuff. It's not just reading your Bible, coming to Bible study, praying a lot. Those things are great and good, but that does not necessarily make you a godly man. So we're going to look at that. Then we're going to come back in the fall in September, and we're going to pick up the story where we're going to leave off, and we're going to do the book of Genesis, and and I'm calling it the the road less traveled, because the the story of Exodus is about the people of Israel getting from Egypt to the promised land, and it's really a picture of our life journey here on this planet in the time in which we live. We're headed to the promised land. How do we make it through the wilderness? So that's what we're going to look at in September when we start back up, the book of Exodus. So that's where we're going. And as I said, we'll we'll send out emails reminding you of all those things, but uh, hopefully we'll see you on April 27th. Let me pray for us, and we're going to jump into it this morning. Lord, we are grateful, as always, for your goodness, your grace, your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Joseph. And Lord, this picture of your sovereign mercy and grace, your plan, your timing, everything about you is perfect. And may we see that even again this morning as we unpack these two chapters. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So this week, we're going to look at the big surprise. We kind of been waiting for this. This is that moment in the story that it's, it's kind of been building, right? Um, we've seen Joseph go through all kinds of ups and downs in his life from being sold into slavery by his brothers, ending up a slave in Potiphar's house, getting accused of attempted rape by his wife, getting thrown into prison, getting left in prison for two years or more, and then ultimately becoming the second most powerful man in the whole land of Egypt. And then his brothers show up. Uh, We looked at that last week. They show up into town, and now this week we're going to see the revelation of the guy they've been talking to, this governor, is actually their brothers. And this is a fascinating story. It's fascinating from a, a lot of different perspectives, but for me it's fascinating because that Joseph was able to keep this secret for so long. Um, he, he's really kept it for two years or more, and now he's going to be able to unveil who he really is to his brothers. Now, last week we saw that things have turned out pretty good for these guys, right? They uh, went home, they brought back Benjamin, and then they got a party thrown for him, right? That's what happened. They, they thought bad things were going to happen. They feared for the worst. That's why their father sent them back with twice as much money and then gifts to give to the governor. He also sent along his youngest son, who he didn't want to give, give back, 
And he prayed that prayer of, Lord, would you show mercy? And he was afraid, fearful of the fact that he may not ever see any of his sons again, but they didn't get what they expected when they showed up at the governor's house. Remember, the, the steward met him, he washed their feet, he took care of them, and then he fed their donkeys, and then he brought Simeon out of jail. Everything's going great, and they get acquitted, acquitted of everything. No crimes were committed. Everything's great. They get their brother back, and it doesn't look like anything bad's going to happen. In fact, they get feasted. They get served all kinds of food in the governor's house, in his presence, and things are looking bright. That last chapter ended with, and they feasted together, and everybody's having a great time. They were merry. It's a wonderful story, right? You could end it there, and this is great. But the story goes on because the test is not yet quite done. There's another surprise awaiting these guys, a greater surprise than they could ever imagine. And there's one final test that they've got to go through. Remember, this is all a character test. What kind of men are we dealing with here? Joseph, who has not seen them for two decades, is still trying to assess who are you and what kind of men are you? Are you faithful? Can you be trusted? Are you godly men or are you unrighteous men? And so he's going to do something that, once again, we could look at that and go, man, this is wicked. This is, this is just evil incarnate. Well, how would you do this to somebody? Remember, he's not being vindictive. I truly believe at no point in the story is he trying to do anything bad to his brothers. He's trying to bring out the best in them. He's trying to expose who they really are. And so he's going to put this final test in because all kinds of good things have happened, right? They've benefited from these things, God's grace and mercy. Their father, Jacob, before he sent him back with Benjamin, prayed that prayer, may he show you mercy. May he show you grace and mercy. Grace and mercy are two sides of the same coin. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is getting what we don't deserve. Now think about that. He could have shown them mercy, right? He could have not given them what they deserve. What do they deserve? Well, they deserve maltreatment because of what they did to him. And he could have said, I'm not going to mistreat you. But what did he do in union with that? He showed them grace. He gave them what they didn't deserve. He actually feasted them, treated them well, took care of them. And that's going to continue. So those two things should go hand in hand. It's not enough to just say, well, I forgive you for what you did for me. Grace needs to go along with that. I'm not going to give you what you deserve, but I'm also not going to give you what you don't deserve. My love, my care, my affection. See, he did both. And it was all done. God's grace and mercy was shown through Joseph. He was the, the PVC pipe. He was the conduit through which that mercy and grace was bestowed on his brothers. And every time I read this story, I was listening to it on audio as I was driving in this morning. It hits me that how difficult this must have been for him. Thinking back on everything they did to him, that he was able to show grace and mercy, that he was God's hands and feet to his brothers. Those brothers who he, he could look in their eyes and he could remember what they said, what they did, all those years living in that same home where they hated his guts. See, justice is getting what you rightly deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We all have mercy, right? I love to have mercy bestowed on me. I'm not so good at bestowing it on others, but I, I love getting it. But grace is getting what you don't deserve. See, that, that's why we sing that great old hymn, Amazing Grace that God would give you and I what we don't deserve, his grace, salvation, forgiveness, redemption. And that's really what this is all about. This is a story of redemption. God redeeming those brothers who in a sense are lost. Ever since they did what they did to the people of Shechem, ever since they did what they did to their brother, they're lost and they're in the process of being redeemed. Mercy and grace are two sides of the same coin. And so it's an amazing story, but now we pick it up in chapter 44, and the next test in the series of tests is going to happen. It says that he commanded the steward of his house, he being Joseph, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack 
And then he adds this little kind of caveat. And one more thing. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain, and he did as Joseph told him. So Joseph has once again come up with a plan, and this plan, I believe, is coming from God. This is what God wants him to do, and it's yet another test of his brother's character. How will you respond? Now, this is all premeditated. It's all been thought out in advance, and he gives the, the suggestion or the command to his steward, this pagan steward, to do this. And it says, as soon as the morning came, something's going to get exposed. Now, what's important here is that he put the silver cup in the sack of who? The youngest. Who's the youngest? Benjamin. Who's Benjamin? His blood brother. Born to the same mother, Rachel, and Rachel died giving birth to him. So they are closely connected. He's, he's the replacement for Joseph. He, he's the favored son now. And so here is Joseph knowing that Benjamin has taken my spot as the favored son of Jacob, our father, and he puts, purposely has the steward put the cup in his sack. There's something going on here. There, there's a plan in place, right? Now, the other brothers know nothing about that. So as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys, and they had gone only a short distance from the city. So they just get outside of town, and then Joseph says to his, serv his steward, follow the men. When you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now, I want to just stop for just a second and kind of clear up what's going on here. We could easily read this and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What's Joseph doing doing divination? Because we know later on the law is going to be really clear about things like divination, um, talking to the dead, trying to foresee the future through these kinds of means. This, this word divination is, is kind of interesting because it, it really is a word having to do with foretelling the future by using a cup, and you would pour, pour water in the cup, and then you would pour oil in the cup, and then you would watch how the two interacted, and you could foretell the future by that. It was pretty common in Egypt. And so you, you look at this and go, okay, well, is Joseph doing this? I thought he heard from God directly. Why is he doing divination? I don't think he's practicing divination. I don't think that's what's going on here. It's very unlikely based on what we know about Joseph, what we know about God, and what God's later going to say about things like divination and necromancy and witchcraft and all kinds of magic that God stands against this. So I don't think that's what's going on. He's simply continuing to carry out the masquerade of I'm an Egyptian. Remember, this is all done for the benefit of his brothers. And even with his steward, his steward doesn't fully know everything we know about Joseph. He knows he's a Hebrew. He knows he worships, worships a different God, but he doesn't know everything there is to know about this young man. So I, I just think this is Joseph carrying on this facade so that his brothers will continue to think that he's the governor. He's an Egyptian. He doesn't want them even suspecting that he might be their brother. I don't think that's even remotely on their mind, but I think that's all that's going on here. So he's going to accuse them of stealing the governor's cup. And to steal this cup in particular, it's silver, which means it's a value, but its secondary value is that it's used for divination, which even they would go, that's not a good thing. You know, you don't steal somebody's idol, you don't steal somebody's divination cup, now it's even worse. It's valuable, and it's now twice as valuable because he can no longer see the future. So they get it. They understand. It's like when he accuses them of being spies, they know what that meant. That's not good. They're going to know what this means, right? You've stolen this cup. It's silver. It's valuable, but it's also a cup used for divination, which means it's twice as valuable. I think that's all that's going on in the story. So he accuses them of doing evil. Evil is going to be very important in the story. Wickedness, it's the word ra, R-A in Hebrew. And it literally is the opposite of righteousness. Those two almost always appear side by side. Those who do wickedness, ra, and those who do righteousness. 
And so that word is going to be critical because he's basically accusing his brothers of what? Wickedness. You're doing wickedness. You're men of wickedness. See, to return evil for evil, this is what he says. Why have you returned our evil for good is, is bad, right? You, you don't do that. But see, if you return evil for evil, it's called vengeance. If you do something bad to me and I do something bad back to you, that's called vengeance. Evil for evil is vengeance. It's what they did to the Shechemites, right? What did they do to the Shechemites? Well, Shechem, the son of the king, Hamor, raped their daughter, or their sister, Dinah, and they wiped out the entire male community of Shechem. Evil for evil, vengeance. He's accusing them of something different, evil for good, which is foolishness. Now, I had a, a, just a quick conversation with one of the guys this morning about this because I, I want you to understand that evil is evil, evil is bad, evil is raw, evil is unrighteousness, but it's also biblically considered foolishness. To return evil for good is foolish. Think about it. If somebody does good to you and you treat them evilly, wickedly, that, that's only a fool would do that. Why would you mistreat someone who does good to you? See, what I, what I need you to understand is that foolishness, biblically, foolishness and wickedness go hand in hand. I, I, I told this, this gentleman that if you call me a fool, I may get offended, but I'll get over it. You call me wicked, and we're probably going to town on that one. You, you can't call me wicked. You can call me a fool, and I'll, I'll brush that off. But see, biblically, to be called a fool is to be wicked. Because to be a fool, biblically, is a fool says there is no God. He lives as if there is no God. And so you're living apart from God, apart from the commands of God, the will of God, and you're living in wickedness. It doesn't mean I have to do evil, egregious things. It's that I'm living apart from the will and the way of God. And so that's what he accuses these men of. You have returned good. What kind of good? Grace and mercy. I've poured it out on you. I've done good things for you, and you've returned that with evil. Now, have they done it? No. Remember, this is all a test. They haven't stolen anything. They haven't taken his cup. They don't know what he's talking about, but he's accusing them of what? Foolishness. And he's trying to get them to do the right thing. I really believe that's at the core of what he's doing. I want you to live how? Not foolishly, not wickedly, but righteously. Do what God would have you to do. See, we know he knows his brothers. He knows their past. He knows what they did to him. He knows about Shechem. He knows all about them. And he knows that they're going to go home and not return. What does he know that they don't know? You got to come back. And not only do you need to come back, you need to bring your dad and the rest of your families with you. It's imperative that you come back, do the right thing, because this is what God has preordained. You got to come back. But he knows they're going to go home and they're going to think about it and go, you know what? We're going to wait out the rest of this famine. They don't know how long it's going to last. He does. And so he's wanting them to do what God would have them do. Go home, get your dad, and come back. See, it's again, it's a character test. What will you do? How will you respond? See, I love this from Proverbs 17, 12 through 13. Listen to what it says. It is safer to me to bear robbed of her cubs than to confront a fool caught in his foolishness. Apply that to yourself. Think about the times you've done foolish things. What a, what a comparison. It's better to me to bear robbed of her cubs. Now, I've never met a bear and I've never seen a bear in except in a zoo behind a wall in a cage but out in the middle of nowhere to see a bear would be frightening to see a bear who thinks you stole her cubs would be more than frightening and that's what it's, it's like to confront a fool caught in his foolishness he's going to bow up he's going to resist he's going to hate you for confronting him that's what it's saying here but look at what it's tied to if you repay good with evil, evil will never leave your house. 
See, I think Joseph so wants his brothers to change because he, he knows if they keep going down this road of doing foolishness, of resisting the will of God, of not doing what God would have them to do, they are going to eventually live the rest of their lives that way. He didn't want that for them. He knows what it's like to live with God, having God with him and guiding him and directing him and blessing him. And he wants that for his brothers. And guess what? You should want that for everybody you know. Your kids, your grandkids, your friends, your neighbors, everyone you know. You should want every person on this planet to walk away from foolishness, which is wickedness, and turn to God because you've experienced what that means and what it brings. So he wants them to do the right thing. So he sets up this really final test. How are they going to treat Benjamin? Now, whose sack gets the silver goblet put in it? Benjamin. Who's Benjamin? His brother. He's also the favored son of Jacob, their father. He's the one that Jacob didn't want to send back. And so he puts the cup in his sack so he will see how will these brothers respond to this favored son? Are you going to do to him what you did to me? Are you going to sell him out? Are you going to give him up? Are you going to just abandon him? What's going to happen when it gets revealed that this kid that was the favorite of Jacob and has been favored by Joseph, right? He gave him five times as much food at that feast. He's going to bless him even more. He, he actually prayed a little blessing over him. How are they going to respond? What are they going to do when he gets accused of theft? And, and this is a fascinating test, right, of, of how we sometimes get exposed. We get put into these moments where God wants to see, all right, Ken, how are you going to handle this one? How are you going to respond to this one? What's going to be your character that flows out of this particular situation? So what happens? The steward overtook them. Remember, Joseph said, catch up with them. They're just outside of town. And he spoke to them these words. Why does the Lord speak to us in such a manner? He accuses them. He he says, why have you taken the cup? Why have you done evil? Why have you stolen what doesn't belong to you? Why would you treat the governor in such a way? They say, far be it from your servants to do such a thing. We didn't steal anything. What are you talking about? We're we're not guilty. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Wasn't that proof to you that we're honest men? Hey, this is like deja vu all over again. We've been here. We didn't steal anything. We certainly didn't steal his silver or gold cup. We wouldn't do that. Why would we do evil for good? We're not that kind of men. Now listen to what they say. And this is, this is almost a picture of foolishness right here because they make a really stupid vow. Whichever your servants is found with it shall die. That's a, that's a risky thing to say. Now what are they counting on? We don't have that cup. We know we didn't take the cup. We are guiltless. We, we are at, at innocent of anything. So I don't know who said this, but somebody spoke up probably Reuben, who was the oldest, and said, whichever your servants is found with it shall die, and we will also be your servants, which is really another word for slaves. If you find that cup, whoever's sack it's in will die, he'll give his life, and the rest of us will become your slaves. But listen to how the steward responds. Let it, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant. So he doesn't go, okay, whoever find, we find it in will die. He, he changes the terms. He, he brings the heat down a little bit. He kind of spares them from their rash vow. He, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Now, this is the key as far as I'm concerned. This is the key to the test. What's he saying? Whoever has the cup will become a slave and the rest of you get to go home. You get to go home. You get to go home how? Innocent. Now, what does the steward know that they don't know? He knows who has the cup. Who has the cup? Benjamin, the favored son of Jacob. You see the test here. When they find out that, oh, he's got the cup, take him. We don't need him anyway. 
Is that what they're going to do? Is that how they're going to respond? Are they going to be so ready to go home that they sell out Benjamin just like they sold out Joseph? That's really what's going on here. So all of them can go home innocent. Let's fast forward. What happens? Well, he searches through all their sacks and he begins with the oldest to the youngest. Remember the feast? Joseph had him seated, oldest to youngest. Now he's going through the sacks. The steward is going through the sacks from the oldest to the youngest. He's, it's like he's holding out how the story's gonna end to the very end. And every sack he opens is empty. And you can almost see as he gets further down the line, the brothers are going, I told you, moron, idiot. We don't have the stupid cup. And they're all getting cockier as they go along until it gets to the what? The last sack. And he opens it up and there it is. There it is. Now look how they respond. This is, this is important. They tore their clothes, which is a sign of what? Grief, mourning, sadness. Oh my gosh. Benjamin has the cup. What did we just say? The one who has the cup should be killed. The one who has the cup's going to become a slave. They tore their clothes. Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. What did the steward just tell them? Whoever has the cup will become a slave and the rest of you can go home innocent. Did they? No. They all pack up and they go back to where? The city, to the house of the governor. They're going with their brother, Benjamin. This is radically different than 20 years earlier. Something has changed. Something is different about these guys. And this is so important to the story to understand that Joseph has targeted Benjamin, the youngest, for a reason. He wants to see what will be the fate of this one, the favored one, his replacement. Benjamin, the youngest son, what are they going to do? And their actions are going to reveal their character. What do we just see? They all loaded up and they went back. They accompanied Benjamin all the way back. See, they had agreed that he should be killed but now they're going to sacrifice their lives on his behalf. Again, this is a radically different picture than what we saw 20 years ago. It's a radically different picture than when they left Simeon in prison, went home, and stayed there for two years. They, they, they're going to go with him. Remember, they said, whichever your servants is found with it shall die. Now, fortunately, the steward has lessened that penalty. He's just saying now, no, he'll be a slave. He will remain here forever as a slave because of what he's done. So they come to Joseph's house. He's still there. They fell before him to the ground. This is the third time we've seen these guys live out that dream, right? The dream from 20 years earlier. You will bow down before me. Here they are doing it again. And Joseph says to them, what deed is this that you have done? He's playing the game. He's keeping it going. He's the governor, the Egyptian Lord. And he says, why have you done such a thing? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? I love how this is worded because I think this is a, a hint from Moses that he's not really practicing divination. He says, don't you know that a man like me, an Egyptian, a royal governor, practices divination? That's what we do. I don't think he's saying, that's what I do. I think he's saying, wouldn't you expect that from somebody of my caliber, my power and authority, that I would use divination in some form or fashion? Why would you do this? Why would you do evil for good? And I love what happens next. Who speaks up? Judah. One of the brothers decides to step forward and to confront this governor. It's the first time we've seen this in any of the men. What we've seen them doing is bowing and bowing and bowing. And now this time, because of the circumstances, Judah's going to stand up and kind of bow up to this governor. He says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? What, what can I tell you? I, I don't know how this has happened. I don't know why it's happened. We don't understand it. We didn't steal it. But what can I say? How can we clear ourselves? What can I tell you that would allow you to let us all go? We don't want to leave Benjamin. But then he says, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He, he, he realizes that all of this is coming from God. And he's not talking about the guilt of the cup because they're not guilty of the cup. 
He's talking about the guilt all the way back 20 years ago. This is all God getting even. Remember the definition of justice is getting what you deserve? See, they think now justice is being served from God through this governor all the way back for what they did 20 years earlier. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now you're going to see the rest of the story. God's going to become the focal point. God is going to, for these men, and as it's always been for Joseph, he is the focal point of everything going on in the story of Joseph's life and now in their lives. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. We will all become slaves to you. It's not he stays, we go, we all stay. We're in this together. We're brothers. We're not going to sell out our youngest brother. Again, that's radically different, right? And you got to remember that Joseph is watching this roll out before his eyes, and he's realizing they are different. This isn't the Judah I knew before. This isn't the Judah that when I was in the pit was saying, hey, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him and make some money. He's not selling out Benjamin. He's standing up for Benjamin. But Joseph said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. See, he goes, no, 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 Judy, it isn't going to work that way. I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to stick to my guns. Only Benjamin, the youngest, the one whose sack had the cup will be my slave. He stays, you go. And I love what he says, go up in peace to your father. There's a little sarcasm in this, right? Go up in peace. Is there peace in any one of those guys' hearts at this moment? No, they're like, we can't go home. How do we go home without him? And yet he says, go home in peace. Leave him. Go. Now, I believe the men 20 years earlier, that group of guys would have gone home in peace very easily. Okay, great. Keep him. We didn't need him to begin with. He's the favorite son. He's the little run of the litter. We don't need him but it's different now. They're not going to take him up on this. And so once again, Judas going to speak up. See, Joseph has changed the terms. He's saying, all of you can go, one stays. And the one who stays is the one you least want to stay because you can't go home without him. See, Joseph knows that. He knows that Jacob is waiting at home for who? Benjamin. Yes, he wants all his boys back, but he particularly wants this one back. He wants him to come home. The guilty one is going to be in prison. He won't die. He's not going to kill him like they vowed. He's just going to keep him for the rest of his life, and everybody else can go home. But see, Jacob, I mean, Judah is going to say, listen, I know you're the governor. I know you're powerful. I know you could kill us but we can't buy into that. We can't go along with that. We're not willing to do that. And I love how Judah finally takes a role of leadership among his brothers. And Judah's gonna be pretty important, guys, when it comes to the people of Israel because he is going to be the tribe, from him will come the tribe, through whom will come King David and through whom will come the Messiah. So this is all kind of a character show of this particular man. And I see him as kind of the less than stellar son. He's not had a great life. He's not had a good life. He's far from perfect. How do we know that? Well, we've looked at it. He's the one who decided and convinced his brothers to sell Joseph into slavery. He's the one who married a Canaanite woman. And then he got a Canaanite woman for his son. And then that son died and the next son died. And this twice widowed woman, Tamar, dresses up like a prostitute, and then he goes into what he thinks is a prostitute, ends up getting that prostitute pregnant, but it just so happens to be Tamar. This is the Judah that is speaking up. This is the Judah who had done a lot of bad things in his life, but at this moment in time, he's doing the right thing. He's flawed, but he's becoming faithful. And he's not doing foolishness. What would would have been foolishness? To leave... Benjamin in prison and go home. That would have been foolish. It would have been wicked. But see, he's he's like, I'm not doing that. For once in my life, I'm going to do the right thing. He's a flawed man, but he's going to prove to be what? A faithful man. 
See, I hope this bring, brings you comfort and encouragement that I don't know what you're going to do today, but you're going to do something foolish. Uh, not egregious, not great, but you will do something foolish, something against God's will, something that inherently is evil because it's not of God. You will do that, and yet you can still be a faithful man. You can be different. You can change. You don't have to go down that path, and that's what we see happen here. So Judas says to his father, this goes all the way back to when they first went home and told him everything the governor had said and said, you got, you got to let Benjamin go back. And he said, no. Jacob said, no, you're not taking my son. So Judas said, send the boy with me. Trust me. That's what he's saying to his dad. You can trust me. And his dad's going, I don't trust any of you. But he says, no, trust me. Send him with me. We will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones, I personally guarantee his safety. What a statement, right? I personally, Judah, will guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible. If I don't bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame forever. Judah is stepping up and he's saying, Dad, we're running out of grain. We got to go back, but we can't go back without him or we all die. And guess what? If we all die, you die and Benjamin dies. So it's best if you let him go. And I guarantee his life with my life. What a picture of sacrifice, right? Now, I don't know how much he meant that, or is this just tall talk at this point, but he's going to keep his word. Because when we fast forward and they come back and all this stuff happens with the cup and the sack of Benjamin, and now they're standing before the governor and he goes, this kid stays, you go home. He goes, no, I'm going to do what I said I would do. And he boldly confronts this governor. This took a lot of guts, guys, to stand before the most powerful man in all of Egypt and to say what he says to him. He goes back and he tells the story. He, he talks about, we went home, we told our dad everything you told us, and he refused to let Benjamin come back. Remember, what was the whole caveat? Simeon stays in prison until you bring that younger son back. And so he said, I begged, I pleaded with my dad, and I promised him that I would bring Benjamin back, and now you're telling me I can't. And see, he's not, he can't buy into that. He can't do it. For your servant became a pledge for the safety of the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. I'm going to live with this for the rest of my life. And there's a little bit of irony in this, right? That Joseph is hearing his brother Judah, who came up with the idea to sell him to Ishmaelite slave traders, say that I will bear the blame all my life if I don't bring Benjamin back. That must have stung a little bit. Why didn't you do that for me? But he's at least glad to hear that Judah has changed and he's now willing to do it for Benjamin. You have grown up. You are willing to do the righteous thing. So he says to the governor, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Please, I beg of you, I plead with you. I will give myself he offers himself as a substitute for his younger brother. It's a picture of what Christ did for you and I on the cross, right? Remember, he is the tribe through which Jesus Christ will come. This is a foreshadowing of that descendant of Judah who will do this very thing for you and I. He did the right thing. He didn't do the foolish thing. He didn't do the wicked thing. He did the righteous thing. He did what God would have him do. He pledged his life for Benjamin. He didn't have to. Technically, he didn't have to. That was God's will. That's what God wanted done. But he made the decision that I will do that. I will stand in his place. Let everyone go. I'll stay. I'll stay here in prison. I will give up my life. What an what a incredible picture of life change in this man, willing to pay the debt of another, sacrificing his life on behalf of the innocent. Judah's sacrifice is going to get honored. We know it's honored, right? It's going to be honored in the form of a blessing later on, and we'll look at this in the couple of weeks ahead. Jacob is going to bless all of his son, but he's going to offer a special blessing on Judah. Here's what he says. The scepter will not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. We know who that's talking about, right? We're on this side of the cross. We know how the story ends. We know about the Messiah. This is a premonition, a prophecy unknown to Jacob at the time of a greater one to come. This is a God-ordained blessing that he's blessing on his son, Judah, talking about this one who will come through whom all the nations will be blessed. Jesus is the fulfillment. Isn't it amazing that we saw how Perez, the child born to uh, Judah and that, quote, prostitute, who is actually his daughter-in-law, is in the lineage of the Messiah, and so is Judah. This man who is flawed yet faithful is in the line, and from him will come the descendant. Which descendant? The Messiah, the Lion of Judah. See, this is how God works. I don't understand it. I don't get it. His ways are not my ways. They're not your ways, but God works his plan to perfection. Jacob is pronouncing this blessing on Judah, and it's got long-term ramifications. He goes on and says, Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? He's picturing someone in the line of Judah who is going to be powerful, a young lion, the lion of Judah, right? Jesus. All of this is pointing towards Jesus. Go all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 25, verse 5. One of the 24 elders said to me, John, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. It's just amazing. Guys, if if you just read the New Testament, you never read the Old Testament, or you prefer the Old Testament, you never read the New Testament, it's like reading half a book. It's like watching half the movie. You got to keep it all in context because this is all one story with one grand plan. And here we're seeing that blessing that Jacob pronounces on Judah is going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's all pointing to the future. That's why all of this is the sovereign will of God. Well, what happens? This is when the big reveal happens. Joseph can't control himself before all those who stood before him. He is so moved by what he sees in his brother Judah that he loses all control. He can't keep up the guys anymore. He can't fake it anymore. And he sends every Egyptian out of the room. So it's just the brothers and him. And he's going to reveal who he is. He says, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. This guy is sobbing uncontrollably. Through the walls, they hear him outside. What's going on? What's wrong with the governor? What's happening inside? They have no clue who he is and who they are. And now he's about to reveal it. He wept aloud so the the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Man, I would love to have been in the room when he said that. Just with the, because remember, he's been speaking Egyptian all up to this moment through an interpreter, no interpreter in the room. And suddenly the Egyptian governor goes, in Hebrew, I am Joseph. They're going, what? And they're all looking at you. Either, did, did you just hear what? And I think they, to be graphic, they probably all just about wet themselves. Like, are you kidding me? And I think the light went on. They recognized him and go, that, it is him. I thought I recognized something about this guy. He looks somewhat familiar. They're shocked. Then he asked something interesting. Is my dad still alive? Why is he asking that? They've been talking about his dad for hours now. They've repeatedly said, Jacob, our father, Jacob, our father, but this is this emotional connection. Is he really still alive? After 20 years, is my dad still alive? I thought he'd be long dead by now. See, this is the emotion coming out. But his brothers couldn't answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. They're like slack-jawed. They're all just staring at him going, and remember, what's going through their brains? Guilt. Oh my gosh, this is when it's gonna come. If he's really Joseph, and we're really his brothers, we're dead meat. They are scared to death. They are, they are in awe. They're, they don't know what to say. I am Joseph. He reveals his identity for the first time, 
And it's all because of what he saw, I believe, Judah do. That Judah finally proved that they are different. And so he says, hey guys, it's me. Ta-da! You know, surprise. Not exactly the best surprise they ever wanted in their lives, but it's going to prove to be one of the best surprises they ever had in their lives because it's going to be the key to their future. So he says, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. He repeats it because he knows they're still staring at him like deer in the headlights. Like, I, no, it's me. I am Joseph in Hebrew, whom you sold into Egypt. I love how he adds that. You know, if you don't believe me, I'm the guy you sold into slavery. What are they already thinking? Is this the guy we sold into slavery? Yes, I am. I'm your worst nightmare, they think. No, I'm the best thing that's ever happened to you. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Don't worry about what you did 20 years ago. It's okay. I've already shown you grace and mercy, and that was just the beginning of what I'm about to show you. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither what? Food, rain, crops. There's five more years to go, guys, but guess what? God sent me here. I love how this story ends in these two chapters, and it's not the end of the story. It's the end of this phase of the story. He says, God sent me here. What does Joseph know? I am here by divine sovereign will. God sent me before you to preserve life. And then he goes on, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for many survivors. I'm here for a reason. Guys, wake up, smell the coffee. I'm your brother. I'm here for God's purpose. Look at me. Look at these robes. Look at this palace. I'm here for a reason. And he keeps going back to God, God, God. So it was that you sent me here. It wasn't you. It was God. You thought you did this to me, but it was God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. He's, he's pointing them back to Yahweh, right? Your God, my God, Jacob's God, Isaac's God, Abraham's God has been the one behind all of this. Wake up, smell the coffee. Your God is a great God. Hurry up, go to your father and tell him your son Joseph is alive. Go tell dad, go tell him everything you've heard. Come down to me, don't tarry. Come back. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And that's going to be huge when we look at next week. And it's going to be even bigger in the fall when we look at the Exodus, the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children. God has made me Lord, master, ruler. So bring everything. Bring your children, bring your flocks, bring your herds, all that you have. I will provide for you for there are yet five more years of famine to come. What did they not know? This famine's far from over. They could have all gone home and they were gonna run out of grain again. But he's saying, no, come here. Come here and let me take care of you. I will provide for you so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. I am here to save you. It's a story of redemption, guys. It's a story of God's mercy. I will provide. He's the agent of God. God put him there for a purpose. He's the chosen instrument to do what? Sustain life. That's what he says. I'm here to keep everybody alive. Egyptians, nations, and you. That's my job. I'm to preserve a remnant of you. I'm to keep you alive because God's not yet done with you. And I love how he says, I'm a father to Pharaoh. It's unlikely that he's older than Pharaoh, but he's saying, I've been put in such a position that Pharaoh listens to me. Think about that. That's a powerful place that God has put him in, and he realizes it. And he says, and I have responsibility over all the land. Why is that important? Because he is the one who designates who lives where, who eats where, and he's going to give land to his brothers. How was he able to do that? God. Everything he's doing is the will of God. That's why he says, I'm Lord of all. He's actually acting as God in the midst of the Egyptians. So they went and they came to the land of Canaan. They go to their father. They tell him everything. Joseph is still alive. He's ruler over all the land. 
And his heart goes numb. He's like, I can't believe this. This is crazy, unbelievable, until he sees the wagons that Joseph sent. He, he begins to realize that this is true, and then his spirit revives. He realizes that my son's alive. Hope is not dead. We can still believe. And it ends like with the best happy ending you can have, right? Everybody's going to be rejoined together, and they're going to make this move, and they get to do it with Pharaoh's moving vans. I love how God even provides the wagons from Pharaoh to make the trip, provisions to make the trip, and then he gets a message from God. Jacob, on the way, stops in Beersheba and hears from God, and here's what he says. I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make your family into a great nation. I will go with you down to Egypt and I will bring you back again. You will die in Egypt, but Joseph will be with you to close your eyes. What a gracious move on God's part to tell this man what's gonna happen. And here's how it all wraps up. They all go. Everybody belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 60 persons at all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Basically, 70 people make the trip. 70 people arrive. That ain't a great nation, right? That's 70 people. But see, God's not done yet. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, a remnant of 70, and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here, but God. I love the transition there from a remnant to many survivors. 78 many, but see, God is not yet done, and something great is going to happen in Egypt, which is what Exodus is all about, which is why we're going to study it in the fall. But for this morning, here's your table discussion questions. Everything in this story happened for a God-ordained reason. Do you, be, do you believe that to be true of your story? Think about your life. Do you believe everything that happens to you is God-ordained or is only parts of it God-ordained and the rest of it is fate, kismet, karma, or just up to you? Is God fully in control? Moses followed God's promise to make the Israelites into a great nation with the fact that they were only 70 in number. Why is he, what is he trying to tell his audience? Remember, who's his audience? Those millions of Jews standing on the bank of the Jordan River getting ready to cross into the promised land to fight against nations bigger and badder than they are. Why is this important for them to hear? And then how should this lesson change your outlook on life? If God was sovereign over all these things and he is sovereign over your life, how should it change the way you live your life? Father, thank you for these men. Thank you for this morning. And would you speak mightily to us as we talk around these tables Open up our hearts and our lips to say what you would have us to say. Open our ears to hear what you would have to say to us through one another. And may, Father, we walk out of here more convinced than ever how powerful, how great, how merciful, how gracious, and how in control you are of all things at all times. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.